It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. Uh, hey, I'm Chino Mayday. Uh, I'm with Unity and Struggle, uh, and I was in the Bronx during the uprising. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Lamont Carter, uh, Unity and Struggle as well. I, mean, I was in Seattle. Hey, I am Ever with Unity and Struggle, and I was in Atlanta during the uprising. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We're going to be talking about long analysis piece that you all put together called Big Brick Energy. Before we kind of get into the nuts and bolts, I mean, tell us about it. Why take the time to write such a very long and in-depth piece, and what did you hope to accomplish with this? I'll describe a little bit what's in it. Maybe it'll give the you know a little context. Um, so Big Brick Energy, uh, it's like uh, it's. It's an inquiry or like a study of the uprising. Um, and we tried to do uh, not just tell the story of like how the uprising went down as I saw it in wherever I was, you know, um, we tried to do a broad survey of how it went down in several different places uh, as broad as we could, like given our time and capacity. And we tried to identify anything that seemed like a general trend. You know, there was a, a, a common thing that happened across different places. Um, and especially any type of challenge or problem that the uprising typically ran into. So that was like the foundation that we try to get. And from there, we go a step further in some parts of it. Um, and we suggest like, okay, based on this, what are some things that we as revolutionaries should do for next time? You know? Or sometimes we don't know what we should do. You know, we don't have an answer to that question, so we can at least clearly pose the question or the problem that the movement needs to figure out. Yeah, so so that's what's in Big Brick Energy. You know, it's a long piece. It's like a long read. Uh, we break it up into um, uh, tactical findings, strategic findings, and then race politics findings. To speak a little bit about the, uh, the why of it, um, we essentially did it because uh, there hadn't been a, a lot of rigorous analysis of the George Floyd uprisings um, from the left. Uh, there are hot takes on social media, um, think pieces and uh, with clickbait titles, um, but nothing that we felt really drew out um, what happened in different locations with kind of a, a bird's eye view to the entire uh, country and how it affected um, it there. So. We kind of we understand that uh, the risk analysis is a little bit rare, um, partly because you know there's a whole bunch of stuff, other stuff going on. Uh, people caught cases. Um, there are COVID tragedies. There were there's a lot of you know um, infighting and per interpersonal harm that 
uh, comes with the, the downturn of the struggle. Um, so when we kind of looked at Brickburg uh, Energy, we looked at kind of a landscape that is out there as far as analysis goes, and there wasn't much. Um, so that's part of why we um, did this analysis inquiry. Um, and we wanted to uh, kind of let people know that this is just a, a conversation starter, not really the last word on everything. Um, some people might read this and say, oh, you know, this looks really interesting. Some of these things vibe with uh, what I know. Some of these other things don't. Um, and we think that that's a, a really good place to start. Um, it's great to be able to compare and contrast um, and highlight things that are distinct of the context that um, are for one city or two cities um, or for the, the majority of the country. Um, so we hope that uh, groups can discuss big, big energy and draw their own conclusions. Yeah. And just just to in the spirit of sort of transparency, we really wanted to focus on the how of what, of what we did. We have a methods section. Don't let that bore you. Um, but we want people to know what went behind this so that they can replicate it themselves as well. So it kind of started off with us just asking questions about the tactics that were unfolding in the streets uh, across sort of UNS. We wrote up some questions. We invited a few people to interview. And then when we did some of the first interviews, comrades, like specifically some comrades in Minneapolis, were sort of pushing us and encouraging us to ask strategic questions. So we dove a little deeper and then we decided to uh, kind of fan out. So we ended up interviewing 15 different comrades across five cities um, and we invited them to tell their stories in a way that made sense to them. We had the questions, but also it was sort of free flowing to understand. Some was one on one, some was group discussion. And then we also, after that, kind of lined up their timelines with timelines from newspaper articles, from official reports. So we ended up looking at a lot of news articles from those five cities, but then we actually ended up looking at official reports from city councils, from police departments, uh, from interpolice agencies from 19 different cities. And then we synthesized those trends. We opened up our draft to feedback and questions from the comrades from those different cities and from um, people in unity and struggle. And we had the finished product. But we feel like it's really important that not only it was amazing to talk to comrades in different cities and honestly to sort of see their recollection too. like the first few days, people could <laughs> describe in excruciating detail and then as the movement, you know, got went in its downturn or even got more intense, people couldn't recollect all the details, but that we also went straight to the horse and got the information from their mouth, i.e. the police official reports. And we feel like that's a really important tactic to use in general for revolutionaries and radicals to keep their ear to the ground about how they're assessing these moments, not just how we are. Well, in the text uh, you write at the start, it says between 15 and 26 million people participated in the uprising. Nearly 550 cities and towns across the U.S. were involved. What are your findings? How did they come up against sort of the narratives, what we hear in the mainstream? Yeah, I mean, one of the most incredible things that emerged when talking to people and when looking actually at the police reports is, 
this whole idea of like the nonviolent protester and then the violent protester, which is a pretty, I think, typical duality that's pushed out during protests, during mass movements by city officials, by police officials in order to kind of justify repression towards a certain group of people that got like scrambled, incredibly scrambled there. The kind of uprising was so massive and so widespread across the country that there was no longer the ability for police officials or city officials to uh, determine like a police liaison from X official group that had called for X official permitted march, right? Because what was happening was it didn't really matter who called for what early on. It just happened. And so many people showed up that it took a life of its own. And so there wasn't the ability to divide the movement in that way in those early days. And in fact, instead, we saw a lot of kind of solidarity happening where Folks were de-arresting people where folks were figuring out how to loot together. Looting was like a, a tactic we saw across various cities and different places. And people kind of figured out a system of doing it. Um, some people told stories of like they were looting stores and then like passing the food to abuelas and, and the apartment windows, right? Uh, other, like in Minneapolis, there was like a, caravan right where people were going in with large amounts of cars in order to loot certain areas and be safer together so this idea of non-violence i think that could only emerge as even a narrative later on when there was kind of a the repression had sort of settled in and where these liberal um kind of containment strategies of saying defund rather than abolition of kind of putting city officials in the hot seat, all of that, that could only emerge when those tactics began to be more widespread. So it's, it's a totally ridiculous idea that um, this movement was nonviolent. I'll just say on the police report piece too, it's also really fun to read. I mean, it's dry reading, but it's really fun to read because you see the panic from the police perspective, every little police department across the country, you know, does an after action report or the city council hires a consultant to make a report. And you get their sense of being totally confused and overwhelmed by the scale and spontaneity of what was going on. Um, and you get those moments of like, like that's it's not like, a, you know, it's not a walkathon out there. There's there's parts that are, but then they're confused because they go and if they try to talk to people, then all of a sudden people start throwing shit at them, you know. And because the cops are also, they panic whenever one of their guns disappears. It's also very well documented in each city. Like on this day, people burn the cars and they took the guns out of the car, you know, and that's a common experience across cities. My perception is the, you know, explosive early high point of the uprising is not like it stops having parts that are nonviolent or more protesty, but it's totally mixed in with all this other stuff and it goes back and forth in a way that the cops just don't have a playbook for. One of the most interesting things about the uprising was that, you know, as you say here, that it was so vast and there were so many small towns and like rural regions. And even when those protests and demonstrations kind of came up against the far right or, uh, you know, like militias came out, it still just showed 
how deep this went and how far it spread. Yeah, definitely. Um, and one thing to kind of think about um, in looking at the George Floyd uprisings in relationship to, you know, the earlier post-Ferguson BLM wave back in 2014-2015 is that in uh, 2014 and 2015, there was rioting definitely in Ferguson, in Baltimore, um, but they were kind of limited to just a few cities um, where there was violent or where there were police murders um, of people in those cities. Um, but in this case, in the George Floyd uprising, the riot tactic was just immediately everywhere um, in all of these different cities, uh, big and small. The riot tactic just kind of took off almost immediately. Um, and so it, it just shows the kind of jump um, that these moments are having um, between all of these eras. Under tactical findings, you write at the height of the uprising in late May and early June, crowds were able to evade and defeat the police in the streets. Let's talk about that. How were they able to do that? And what does that actually say about the ability of the state to contain an uprising of this magnitude? Yeah, that was super fascinating. So basically what happens is there are so many people that are participating. And like we've said, like you've noted, it's happening all over that police agencies are just not prepared for something of this magnitude. So we see a few different things happening. One, they're completely overwhelmed. So for instance, you see cops like working back to back to back shifts and being exhausted. Um, but you also then see the sort of shortcomings of particular and individual police agencies. They try and overcome it by creating these intra-police agencies and like working with the neighboring city or working with a kind of related force. But because they're not necessarily used to doing this, a lot of information falls through the cracks. So they're like trying to get information to plainclothes officers who are on the ground, but the kind of chain of communication isn't flowing the way they're used to. So it doesn't get to the officers on the ground. So they're kind of like totally lost at first, uh, which is pretty incredible and it doesn't seem like it's also kind of fascinating seeing the different ways that city officials responded and media um, and then the way that police were responding on the ground and kind of seeing how that didn't always match up. Um, so you see that the police are basically overwhelmed. And then you see that when they even do try and, and like create these interpolice command centers and agencies, they targets of course for protests so when protesters when writers find out about where these are they basically show up there and they make their lives hell and so then they have to flee whatever command center they're at and try and set up all over again somewhere else um so that was kind of an incredible thing that was happening eventually the police kind of gained their footing again and they really are able to do that with the help of the National Guard, with the help of um, like uh, what was it called? Curfews. Right. Uh, but it was pretty incredible what happened on our side. The things we heard from different comrades are like it, it, it might depend on the the feeling in the streets in the different city. In some places, people describe like lower Manhattan uh, is often more of a cat and mouse game with the cops, but there it was like the mouse was just like running wild, you know? So there'd be a lot of drag stuff into the street, set it on fire, the cops can't follow. 
people describe that in Philly as well, you know, like burning dumpster means the cops stay back. You, th- you throw it at them from there, you know. Um, so that kind of thing occurred. In many cities, a turning point was when um, a really combative, militant crowd uh, forced police to abandon vehicles, you know, and that ha- happened in multiple places. And so many people described, oh, the first time I saw on social media a police car burning, I knew it was on. You know, those things also take on a symbolic significance. So that was happening in multiple cities. Actually, one comrade, I can't remember who had said it, had, uh, had said at a certain point when the momentum started to shift, like the cops got wise. So they would park lines of vehicles and keep cops in the vehicles, you know, because the crowd like wasn't quite willing to smash up the car with the cop inside of it if they weren't going to leave it. You know, so, so uh, these kind of things happen too. We've brought up looting a couple of times right now. I wanted to ask, you know, how much do you feel that the pandemic played in all of this and just the fact that there was this was taking place uh during a time when a lot of people were feeling the heat economically and also you know we were under lockdown so i think one thing um that you see saw as a, a trend kind of as far as like talking points throughout social media uh during the pandemic was you know the government not doing enough um not you know being stingy, not paying people, et cetera, et cetera. And there were a lot of fights around, you know, just, yeah, that distribution of money to, uh, to just ordinary people. And I think one of the things that you, that we also saw in a lot of these different places was the rioting and looting was specific to a lot, uh, in the very beginning, uh, it was specific to, um, a lot of these like high end luxury brands. Uh, additionally, some people that we talked to talked about how, um, when, uh, the looting started, people in the streets were saying, Oh, I know where my, where my grandma's jewels are being held. I know where, you know, this, that, or the other thing that was once theirs and in, in the community that had to be sold for, for them to be able to live. That's where they went. Uh, first to get those things back. Um, so I think that part of it, um, that the part where everybody is kind of down and out throughout, uh, in the very be- beginning of the pandemic certainly, uh, played a role in, uh, how the rioting and looting kind of played out. Yeah, it's a good question. Okay. One of our findings is compared to say the Occupy moment or Standing Rock or something like that, the 2020 uprising had fewer of these like, assembly spaces that were created, you know, where people then get together and start deliberating, like, what's the meaning of what just happened? And where do we want to go? And that's kind of notable. I don't know that that's the case. This wasn't like things that people said. So it's kind of speculative. But I wonder if the fact that there was a pandemic uh, kind of influenced that it kind of kept people from coming together in a long term way after showing out in the streets initially. It seems like this turned into a, a rebellion, like as these things do about everything in the society. Right. And I think the fact that just the last piece I'll add is I think the fact that that it was pretty early in the pandemic and people's futures were so uncertain meant that some people also had time in a way that they didn't have. And so we're able to participate in street activity in a completely kind of freed up way that they might not be able to typically. And I think that this is also sort of the dual nature that you see with riots and with this huge moment that happened across the country, which is that it's both an incredibly sort of incredulous, sad, angry, fed up energy and simultaneously a celebration. And I think that was 
is always the fact around tragedy and around the things that we face on a daily basis. And then it was fueled. So much fuel was added by the pandemic and everything that was going on for both of those things. The celebration of being able to be in communion with one another, right? But then also the just ex- incredible tragedy and lack of knowing of what the future held. In terms of sort of the national situation, what did the bringing in of the National Guard mean for the rebellion and what effect did that have on its trajectory? What we heard a lot about actually was curfews rather than National Guard. Um, but I think National Guard behind the scenes were very important. Um, I think the reason you hear that differently, people, the, uh, people's experience of like when the state started to get their together and come down on people was as curfews are imposed. And it's mostly the cops enforcing those, you know, and that cut both ways because then the cops could also while out and it would, you know, bring more outrage. But um, many people in different places describe that the state comes hard with the curfew, even extends it to other surrounding cities or not even surrounding, just like other cities in the state. And it becomes a scare tactic like, ooh, the rioters are coming. There's a curfew. Um, so many people experience that as like a kind of turning point. But. Behind the scenes, also, the National Guard deploying is, in many places, I think, part of what allowed the police departments to regain that initiative. Like, they wanted to avoid a 1960s scenario, Detroit 67 or something, with, you know, National Guard, like, walking through the street. I guess that was the military. But the uh, they wanted to avoid, like, direct clashes with the National Guard. So often they're deployed in, um, like... Uh, you know, more further back staging areas or they're playing a like security role and the cops are still the ones doing the confrontation. But just adding those forces, um, the, even if it came with some turbulence and like a cluster they, when they initially deployed, um, it could free up police departments to then be able to, you know, bring the crackdown. I think that did happen in several cities. Just knowing that or just Thinking on the fact that the National Guard was called into so many different cities, even if they weren't uh, specifically confrontational with the uh, with the protesters, like you said, um, Portland was its own thing and really should uh, there should be some type of focus on the fact that Portland was based <clears throat> was basically under an insurrection for almost a year, essentially. Um, but the fact that, uh, the National Guard was called into so many cities is just a testament to the strength and the size of the George Floyd uprisings all over the country. Occupied spaces or so-called autonomous zones. I'm curious how you see those experiments taking place. It seemed like those had extreme highs and extreme lows, but at the same time, they represented sort of this like needed growth of the rebellion needing to take space. Yeah, definitely. And I think that um, this is a kind of a big open question, um, not necessarily the, uh, the autonomous zones, um, but uh, how those, how the autonomous zones were patrolled and policed um, is a, is kind of a big open question uh going forward i think that uh the legacy of the of the autonomous zones is complicated um because like you said they are open um places where you know yeah mutual aid happens um exchanges happen people take back these squares um uh parts of the city and it's kind of a uh a 
synthesis in, in ways of the Occupy Wall Street, um, era and also the post Ferguson, uh, BLM wave, uh, that happened in 2014, 2015, where there's both the riot and the taking back of the space. Um, and you, yeah, you see this come up in a bunch of different places, but the legacy again is complicated due to, um, especially in both Atlanta, um, Atlanta that took on or that took over the Wendy's, um, the burned down to Wendy's where, uh, Richard Brooks, uh, was murdered, um, and in Seattle, uh, where they took over, um, Capitol Hill, you had, uh, the end of both of those, um, areas. Yeah. Those autonomous zones was because was due to, um, murders and deaths, uh, that happened, um, due to those, uh, those who took up arms and were patrolling these sites, um, both in, Seattle, um, Chaz, where, uh, Antonio Mays Jr. was killed, um, coming to, uh, the, um, encampment area. And then additionally, a, an eight year old child was, uh, was murdered in Atlanta, um, coming to, uh, that area. And so it's just a, it's a really difficult situation because one, we want to be able to say that yes, this is a, uh, a necessary growth, um, of the, of kind of a movement um, that's growing now uh, that they take space, that they are able to um, kind of vacate the the area of police and the state um, and kind of find a way to work together um, in ways that the, the state doesn't exist in those relationships. But at the same time, because we are going in, situations um just us and uh it's kind of uh, a vacuum of all of these previous um institutional relationships the police the state etc uh that are no longer in that autonomous zone um yeah the question is how do how do we keep these spaces kind of safe and open and inviting while also not having um Violence, uh, either perpetrated by, say, the left or, um, violence perpetrated by the, the right and white supremacists. Um, in Atlanta, this was a, this was a specific problem where, uh, white supremacists kind of came through to, to that area, um, would take pot shots and things like that. And so a armed black, uh, resistance was in some ways necessary in Atlanta, but at the same time ended in tragedy. So I think that there is a, like I said, uh, a big open question as to how armed uh, armed self-defense ant, uh, exists in these autonomous zones. And then additionally, how the autonomous zones operate in ways that are both inviting um, but pr- protective. The spread of kind of these online uh, f- false flag conspiracy theory type things. How did that impact everything? Uh, yeah, I, it was very interesting. I mean, the multiple folks that we... Talk to you, describe those kind of narratives developing, you know, um, the, well, the uprising still going on. And, um, you know, we're talking to people like a year after the fact is when we start doing interviews. And some people noted like the, just the narratives and the unclarity, is that a word? Unclarity about what really happened, um, that actually changed people's, uh, sort of memories and perceptions of what they just did a year before, you know? So like folks that were in the street and experienced how she went down, which might have been like, 
in many cities, it's not a white far right crisis actor or something setting off. Obviously, it's like youth from the neighborhood setting off sometimes with leftists helping them or not, you know, um, and and also a sort of, uh, you know, uh, multiracial rioting in the streets like that also happened for the, uh, the several days in the beginning of the uprising, like a very multiracial sort of setting. And but people remember that differently sort of through the lens of those narratives that developed, whether it was like the, um, you know, white outside agitator one or um, I don't know, any any number of different different conspiracies that circulated. I think in the moment, probably one of the biggest things it did was it created political space for um, like the local political elites and especially the like elites of color to reach out to the forces within the uprising that might be more comfortable with a more typical sort of protest repertoire, you know, and be like, uh, you put themselves forward as the people you can negotiate with and get some change, you know, because it's the very moment when people start to doubt, you know, like who's involved in this uprising and what are the different um, interests behind why people are participating and can I really trust everybody? Like that sort of moment happened and many comrades discuss that and that i think is a real thing it's like when an uprising brings out so many different uh people from different life experiences racial backgrounds nationalities and whatnot then at a certain point the movement has to um come to a deeper understanding about what it means that we all came together you know and where we're trying to go with this and that same moment is the moment when you can get a conspiracy theory in there uh insert a lot of questioning and then some the local political elites can say, all right, let's, uh, you know, let's make a deal. And I, I really represent you because the, the repression side of capitalism in the state also needs the co-optation side. You know, it also needs, um, some portion of the state convincing some portion of the uprising that it can represent their interests. Everyone's gone mad. It seems the world has gotten cold. We didn't treat the symptoms, so disease has taken hold. There's monsters in the palaces and liars at the top. A soulless class of psychopaths who want to take the lot. And no, this is not a dream. This is our reality. So screams it's time to change your mentality everything is bad it seems your dreams are washed away all that's left inside your head is twisted and decayed there's gangsters in the government the rich men run the show but a single spark inside their powder keg and it will blow no, this is not a dream This is our reality So, if you can't stand the screams It's time to change your mentality
famously, like one of those was a nonprofit that ended up being used by the city to at least try to take down George Floyd Square. I believe, you know, they were ultimately successful. I'm curious, you know, how did that dynamic play out? Especially in Minneapolis, where that was the that dynamic was like the most pronounced, right? It happened a lot. Um, what we heard is like the groups that become community self-defense, that can mean a lot of things to different people. So it's like armed and unarmed. It's like black, white, multiracial groups. It's a range of politics. Defend small businesses, keep the community safe, provide an alternative to the police. You know, it's, it's all of that thing. So it isn't, um, uh, an inherently like revolutionary left force, force like ta-da, you know, dual power has emerged. The, it's more like a thing that happens as the state fractures and then the movement needs to figure out a way to give it a, a kind of direction. And so comrades had described in Minneapolis, there were attempts to do that by some of the community defense groups to like bring, bring them together or bring some of them together to figure out, you know, what, how we're going to move forward. Um, that's one of the things that we tried to highlight in some of our findings like that. That type of thing could happen again. There's a major uprising, local state fractures, police are like, I peace, we're not going on the streets. Y'all could screw yourselves over or whatever. Neighborhoods self-organize in many different ways. How, how do we uh, create a higher level of organization and autonomy? Mm-hmm. Um, and some of those things, the questions that you might have to grapple with would be like, uh, you know, how do, how, how do you deal with different kinds of community harm that might be going on? Um, how do you relate to this, the state? Because at the same time that this is happening, the city council people are probably like reaching out to different community groups one on one for backdoor conversations. What are your concerns and how can we bring services back to your neighborhood or whatever? You know, um, so there will be all these questions about how you relate to stuff that's going on. And you got to develop some kind of common perspective or platform on it. That was our sense. And I think it's also just interesting. We don't dive in, into this in the piece, but. I do think it's interesting how, um, you know, Chino described the nature of community self-defense groups. It's not just like leftists or people with a particular political ideology. Sometimes it's just we're a bunch of Latinx businesses on the street and we need to protect our businesses. So we're going to be armed and defending it. But it's also interesting how like immediately because of our training and socialization and because of the force of the police defense self-defense community self-defense means like guns on a street and so it it's it's just like really masculinist idea right of like basically violent protection (laughs) and so i i think it's a really important thing too for us to think about um you know these questions that we're left with also a question and a thought to disseminate is how can we expand this idea of what it means to do some type of community protection and self-defense so that the immediate idea that pops up isn't just having to do with being armed and oftentimes sort of seeing people who are being armed doing so in a way that's sort of pretty intimidating and meant to be so. Like, how can we disseminate different types of ideas that are actually the things that we need on a day-to-day basis much more than we need guns in order to protect our our communities. So how do you feel like the left intervened or participated in this in a meaningful way, if at all? I can start. I'm sure we all have thoughts. Um, but some, I mean, some of the things that we saw the left doing in several different cities that were helpful were that the left oftentimes kind of had this undergirding 
um, logistical structuring that was happening during all these mass movements that allowed it to continue. So for instance, in certain cities like manning the Twitter where, um, the specs of where the next protest were going to be or where the police were congregating or where it was moving. Um, there were safe houses that people could kind of run off to and rest for a little bit, get more information, have a bite to eat. Leftists were disseminating lessons that they had learned watching other movements. Um, so what to do when you're pepper sprayed or how to move in particular ways to evade the police. Um, there, that seemed like really important and actually also seemed like a way to garner people on the streets trust. And, um, it, we could see it happening in like two ways. One is that that could just kind of make the left siloed, right? Like it was just leftists doing that and they weren't necessarily trying to bring other people into that. Or it could be this opportunity of, well, you know, this is, these are the ways that we do things. These are some things that maybe can help you. Like how can we bring you into the fold of what we're doing beyond this particular moment? So those were important things that lefties did in the first few days and weeks of street activity we saw that it was like less useful because again of the um character of this mass movement and just like the sheer magnitude whoever called for a protest it didn't matter so it was less like leftists calling for a particular time and place and organizing the event blah 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 it could be like a random college student that called for it and 10,000 people would show up so that didn't matter so much uh, so those were some helpful things that leftists were doing. Back on the unhelpful things for a minute. We heard from the different people that we spoke with. Uh, I mean, you had um, the vanguard parties out in the street doing their thing, which could sometimes be helpful, but also could sometimes be like jockeying for position to get their banner at the front of the march or a lot of the performative stuff, you know, lead people away from a potential confrontation with the the police or the precinct or something and instead go to someplace for a photo op, you know, they're like falling back. Nonprofits doing similar stuff, right? Falling back on the familiar tactical repertoires that also imply a certain kind of negotiation with the state, which I think also that only becomes possible as the movement itself doesn't have its own sense of direction and how it wants to interact or not with the state and what, you know, it wants to demand immediately and what vision it has. But uh, at a certain point, I, the, 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 you saw both the, the kind of dinosaur parties and nonprofits start to do that more typical stuff and that start to define the pace of events. Um, and in some cities like it, the, here in New York, we got some good stories about, which I didn't go down to it, uh, good stories about the encampment that happened here, which was less of an autonomous zone, like cops abandon the street and people take it over. Uh, it was much more like the types of, um, nonprofit led, um, like protest camps that have happened at city hall over the years. It just also pulled a bunch of like young abolitionists and revolutionaries who are out in the street. And so there it was, uh, that one was run by a local nonprofit. They were pushing a defund demand. Well, local city council, um, budget negotiations were going on. And there it became, uh, since they had taken the initiative and started that thing, it became like an internal struggle over like what's going to happen at this encampment and if we're going to use this opportunity to take demands what are they so there you saw like the young radicals 
trying to hold their own assemblies and like come up with their own vision out of that space, which um, over time like clashed more and more with the nonprofits trying to lead it. So you saw those kind of dynamics too. Because I mean, that seems to be like you said, kind of the death nail of the rebellion is when the lefty groups take over and they just kind of like try to squeeze that, you know, wet rag for every drop possible until it's dry and it's done and they, you know, wait for the next thing. No, I, I agree with that. And I think that, um, like a lot of the past five or six years has kind of shown is that there is not just within the bureaucratic left, but uh, within the left as, as a whole, there is a, a certain level of poverty. Um, there is a certain level of stagnation, I guess, is the real is the real situation. Um, you know, in the past, however many years, any number of uh leftist national groups have uh, folded have collapsed um and there isn't really a mo- yeah there isn't a movement on the left that is kind of equivalent to uh what we saw during the George Floyd uprisings um and so it does it does point to a little bit of um the need for the left to get with the times um really kind of analyze what moment we're actually in and uh propose you know concrete actions that uh that respond to the times that we are in, uh, the moment that we're in, um, and the situation that we find ourselves in. Um, and I think that that's a, that's a real big issue, um, for the entirety of the left. One provocative question that I, I at least walked away from, from doing this inquiry is, um, uh, it's about, I'm still trying to figure out how to frame it exactly, but it's something like, what's the relationship between like making insurrection and developing a program, you know, because how we just described it is uh, th- uh, like they're opposed in some way. And we saw them be opposed on the street. Like there's the are we going to continue with the rioting or are we going to follow the party around to go give their slate of demands to the city council people that they negotiate with? Like the, sometimes those things pull in totally different directions. But at least from I think one thing that came out of our discussions is um, also they're sort of both true or they both existed in the uprising in a way our insurrectionary comrades sometimes talk like you know they're against politically representing ourselves at all like never say to the state we are this and we want this because already it puts you in a demobilized negotiating position and all the problems of like who is we and who gets to speak for we all that comes up and then on the flip side socialist comrades are sometimes like Riots are understandable, but they're also regrettable. And to get anything, you need to have a set of demands and a program, a plan for how we're going to get from here to socialism and a set of immediate demands that we're going to, you know, and and usually the party is the one that comes in to facilitate that. So, uh, but in fact, I think organically, like the uprising in the street did both. Like, obviously, to win any kind of concessions, uh, it's only the threat of major uprisings that creates political possibility. And we saw it actually do that by like putting the ruling class on the defensive and they fracture and disagree with one another about what to do. And some people start offering new things that they wouldn't have offered before. Like it's, it's the, the threat of uprising and actual carrying out of uprising. Well, negotiation is still going on that makes gaining anything possible, not having nice working relationships with, you know, these council members or we have a majority in the state assembly you know that could be helpful at a time but it's it's ultimately that that threat of like our power but then on the flip side i think you also see like some people describe moments where they'd won the streets you know the cops had fled we'd unlooted everything 
and there was a sense of like, okay, where do we go from here? You know? Um, and so I think even within like the riot and the insurrection, it, in order for it to keep going and like evolving, uh, and taking more and more control of like life, you know, <laughs> and posing a challenge to capitalism and whatnot, people need to develop in the course of that an idea of like, why exactly am I doing this? It's, I'm tough about this thing, but it has these broader meanings, you know, where are we going? What do we aim to achieve? What's some immediate that I want right now that'll make my life better and make it harder for them to rule over me, you know? All that is stuff that traditionally talked about as like program demands, whatever. Um, but it's, it's, uh, I think we need to play a role in helping facilitate the movement figure that out, not have a party come in and tell us they already had the answer all along. You're listening to It's Going Down, part of the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. Follow us online at itsgoingdown.org and on Twitter at IGD underscore news. If you like and appreciate this podcast, go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop and give us a one-time donation. Sign up to donate monthly or donate through Bitcoin. Again, that's itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support. And now, back to the show. And now people have passed that. And so, like, you you didn't listen, therefore we're just going to burn this down. The question then that comes after that is, like, you know, what happens then? Because you can burn something down and still have to, like, go to work the next day. Yeah, that's that's real. I think that's what um kind of Chino's also pointing to, of this, like, need for clear answers. And I think what we saw happening, too, is nonprofits and progressive state forces are incredible at stepping in and co-opting language and containing movement. And so, you know, even the absurdity, frankly, of the idea that the Minneapolis city council could vote to abolish the police, like what in the world, that very idea of kind of containment and ability to translate it into demands is translating action into Demands, I do not think is a negative thing. And I think is kind of we're all talking about the necessity of that containing and translating into legislative demands that ultimately are just about electoral wins that maintain the status quo. That's problematic. And that's what we've seen happen over and over again. That's what we saw occurring from, you know, I think a section of the left of abolitionists of organizers never imagining that hundreds of thousands of people could be screaming abolish the police or demanding it to that happening. And then somehow that got rewritten as defund the police in a matter of weeks. And so how can we like, we know that's going to happen, right? That's like the history of radical mass movement in this country and in many places. And so knowing that that's going to happen and sometimes knowing, I think to the fault lines of, where a lot of mass movement occurs in the United States, a lot of it happens around police killings and racial reckonings in this country, then how can we be prepared to have, to not contain any street activity, to encourage and be a part of street activity and build with people in that way, and also to be a part of, in those moments even, disseminating demands that truly win back power for people and are not about demobilizing. I think what we've seen is, frankly, like 
a fatigue that is across so many sectors of people and just, yeah, like a hopelessness, a loss and a lack of assuredness of kind of where, where do we go from here? So I think that's important for us to answer, you know, where do we go from here? It doesn't have to be a 10 point program, but I think we can put out a few conjectures and, and feel brave enough to do so. You all have mentioned demands a couple times. Explain how you see demands and like how they play into or don't play into revolt. I think we could see, I can um, start a little bit. I think we could see it in a lot of different ways. I mean, if we're talking about abolishing policing, I'm sure in each of our local um, and our local situations, there's organizing around basically that demand, right? So something, for instance, in Atlanta is Cop City that's been happening. Um, APD, Atlanta Police Department, is trying to build what would be the largest cop complex, police complex, larger than LAPDs, larger than NYPDs, and the most intact forest inside of Atlanta, right? This is not something that was unfolding during the uprising, but this is something that is now a completely articulable demand and to me a pretty straight line from the George Floyd uprising to now, right? So pushing movement and figuring out how to push the hundreds of thousands of people that were on the streets in Atlanta and that were supportive of something like that into envisioning and fighting for the refusal of destroying a forest and further policing and murdering people inside of Atlanta. That That is an articulable demand. I think where we might get lost sometimes is in believing that, um, and I'm using we loosely and broadly, but in believing that we can like, like do something, frankly, like have city council <laughs> vote to abolish the police. I, I genuinely feel like the, intention of that is is beautiful and also it's completely absurd and of course it's not going to happen it's like handing the power of the people who sign the checks for the police handing them the power to decide not to sign the checks for the police like it does not add up or make sense so i think it's us continuing to integrate autonomy into our daily practice and our daily lives amongst the community and always to understand that we do need things right now. Like we do actually need particular reforms right now that allow for us to have a life that allows for us to fight. And those are basic demands, but demands that can increase our power as people rather than giving more power to the state apparatus. Those I think are demands that we can get behind and fight for. And yeah, I think Doing that alongside constantly, constantly pushing for street activity in a way that is broad and in a way that involves many layers of the class, then that that is a two-pronged strategy that I think gets us far. And one thing about demands, it's such a good question. And it's it's really practical and really theoretical, too. You know, it's like, what your theory, what's your theory of the state and the what reforms are and all that. But the, I think it is true that if you're demanding something, you're demanding something from someone. So there's that dynamic that Ever's talking about. Like the some things are just like revolutionary measures. Like we aren't going to demand be a moral capitalist and give me your factory, please, and then you'll be a good person. We're just going to take your factory. So so at a certain point, it's like you go beyond that. But uh, then it also makes sense to make demands in order to live in the society. And I think 
at every every time you do that, it's contradictory because they want to use the granting some kind of demand. They want to do it in a way where they control the timeline and they control the meaning surrounding it in such a way that it builds their legitimacy and it fractures us, you know. And we want to use it so that it makes it easier for us to live and harder for them to rule, you know. And I think that does happen sometimes, too. You put this, the ruling class with their backs against the wall, and they might be forced to give some demands that are actually not great for them, that leaves them more divided, that weakens them, you know. But because the other option is the insurrection keeps going and, you know, they're scared of, uh, of that. So I think there is uh, a possibility with all demands that we can use it for our purposes to struggle further. I don't think that's just like straight bread and butter. Like we get more money, so we have more time or something. That That's true. But it's also like the way that we organize for it, that we, the movement, the, the proletariat, like understand it as something we did to the enemy to make them give their. So I think it's it's possible that you get something that's like like the metaphor that springs in my mind is, you know, that video from Baltimore 2015 where the kids were like driving the cops back. Right. And they're throwing their rocks at the cops and the cops are like falling back and they fall back so far that the kids move up and they move right over the rocks that they just threw and they pick up the rocks again and keep throwing it. It's like a positive feedback loop, you know, and I think demands and gains can be like that. Not always. If we screw up, they use it to reconsolidate rule, but they can be something that we win and then we use to just hit them again. You know, one thing that we've uh, talked a lot about on this program, we've been talking now for about an hour, um, is how do autonomous movements bring in people after something like this? I think honestly that is, that is the one of the biggest questions. Um, we saw... Uh, you know, with the, the BLM post Ferguson, um, wave that took place over, I would say, you know, uh, roughly a year and a half, um, over 2014 and 2015, um, with, uh, peaks and valleys and things like that. Whereas with this, um, with this uprising, there was, uh, the initial uprising, um, that happened in, uh, in a lot of cities, we noted that there was what we call the double bump protest where um, the first protest happens and then there's a, a series of maybe weeks or months between. And then in, uh, in the city itself, there's another police murder and that kind of triggers a second wave of protests. Um, that's a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit rowdier, things like that. But where it took place over a year and a half with uh, the BLM wave with this one, it was up, down maybe up again and then kind of that was that's a little bit kind of it um and one of the i think one of the important things about big brick energy um is that we were able to like re re-look at a lot of things that maybe we had just kind of forgotten about um or had just kind of passed us by and we had forgotten because it's been two years since the um since the uprisings. So I think that one of the big things is, yeah, how do we keep this momentum up? How do we, you know, even when it say it, uh, the energy wanes and, uh, you know, the, the looting and the rioting, uh, kind of ends. Um, what do we do to keep people either in the streets or get them or, uh, kind of channel that energy into, um, something that kind of furthers the energy again. Um, what that is, honestly, I'm not sure yet. 
Yeah, I think there's also, there's an interesting thing about like, okay, so this question of how do we bring people into organizing? And I think sometimes we can think of it in like a kind of limited way where I think for many of us, organizing looks like, you know, being in a really particular milieu um, and frankly, spending a large amount of your time outside of work. I mean, if you're lucky during work too, but a large amount of your time outside of work, um, kind of participating in movement activity and base building and whatever it is. And I think that's something that we kind of are seeing a little bit right now that maybe the connection isn't always explicit is there's like a lot of work-based struggles that are happening right now. Um, and there are a lot of forms of organizing that can take place across the sectors that people already find themselves in. And so us, uh, so I think as like maybe anarchists and communists and, and sort of radical organizers can um, sometimes be participating in those things, but then sometimes also be participating in really particular forms of organizing. So how do we figure out how to disseminate during and after mass movements, the skills for folks to be able to do that in whatever um, sectors and milieus that they find themselves in. And that when we do see those things happening, and maybe it's not exactly what we want it to be, right? Maybe it's not completely abolitionist in character, but how can we like be supportive of those things critically so that we're engaging and and those people begin to see us as folks that they can kind of lean on or confide in and be able to kind of push it further along as well. So I think that's that's a way, too, for us to see, like, OK, maybe right now we're not seeing mass movements around police abolition at this exact moment across many, many cities in the United States. But we are seeing different types of mass activity that are really, really important. One thing that we saw in a couple cities, uh, you know, Atlanta would be one good example. So we had the police murder of Rayshard Brooks, which kicked off sort of like its own rebellion within the rebellion. When we talked to, to people in different cities, um, like you mentioned, Atlanta, uh, another place, Philly, um, where there was the initial protests that happened um, kind of in solidarity with uh, Minneapolis and with the George Floyd murder. Um, and then maybe a little bit of a, a waning period. Um, and then usually this, it was caused by a, another police murder in the specific city, um, that we were looking at, uh, in Atlanta and in Philly, um, where there would be a secondary protest. And that would be, um, those secondary protests actually, um, from what we, uh, what we found had a, a very interesting character where um where initially in the in the the first um solidarity uprisings riots uh it was kind of a multiracial um had a, a specific character where it was you know rioting and looting and uh the police kind of on the back foot um whereas in the secondary protests the double bump protests uh, as we call them um in the piece these had a character where they were primarily proletarian, they were primarily black, um, and in a lot of cases, uh, the police were um, no longer on the back foot and very much interested in um, kind of getting revenge for the uh, for their embarrassments in the beginning. And so these 
protests, uh, these second protests, these double protests were a bit rowdier, but also uh, a bit more violent on the police end. Um, and so you have this, yeah, very, uh, this differing character, um, between the initial protests and the, uh, the, um, second protest where the people who are participating in it, um, are very, very militant, um, and ready to, uh, ready to fight the cops. Whereas, and on the other side, the cops are also ready and willing to fight back. Um, and so, yeah, that the character of that protest was, um, very different um, from the initial protests. Yeah, and the race politics of how that, we call it double bump, play out is also different. It, it seems sort of like a moment where, like, the streets fight alone, you know, like the hood is fighting alone, partly because the uprising is, like, crested a little bit, and the forces that are more inclined to go back to the typical kind of repertoires and negotiating with the state are doing so, you know? So it's like in the official left with a capital O capital L, you know, they're off like leading marches and doing whatever. And a secondary uprising pops off. And then it's like the streets are fighting on their own, you know? Um, so that was real different. We're like, all right, the height of the uprising, there's even um, like the, the, it was such a um, uh, like multiracial mix that people were like commenting on it. And we put in some of the like funny comments that are there when people realizing like, Oh, shoot, we're like looting the shop, you know, and we're like, all creeds and colors are looting the thing, you know, like, was it in Atlanta, like someone was smashing the windows and the crowd was chanting like, go white boy, go white boy. Yeah, go white boy. <laughs> like funny moments, you know. The Then later, the double bump moment is like, um, uh, uh, like much more racially autonomous, you know, and also depending on the space, it's like, uh, white people or other non-black people, depending on who's, you know, rising up, like the, might not be so trusted. Like, unless you really want to get down, unless you're really about looting right now, don't come over here, you know? And so people describe that, that, that kind of dynamic too. And we see that as, that's one of the things I'm taking away that like, um, the, these uprisings against white supremacy and police violence and racism, they, they aren't just linear, like, we were all divided against each other and then we learned to be united. Nor is it just the other way. It's like ebbs and flows with the struggle, you know, and there's moments where there's more like united power and there's moments where the struggles are going to be more autonomous, like depending on racial position and what community you're from. And, you know, like, are you from here sort of stuff? And that's a challenge too. like, how do we do uh, movement solidarity in that setting, you know? Um, so being able to flex with those moments, I think, is another thing that autonomous movements could take from the uprising. Yeah, you have a whole section in here about the race politics of the uprising, what made multiracial unity possible. Get into that a little bit. The initial um, period of time uh, that the rioting and the looting is happening, um, before uh, the police and before the, the state um and even before the nonprofits are able to find their footing, figure out what's happening and then respond to it, there is because of this explosion in energy and, um, and space, essentially, um, there are a lot of opportunities for kind of multiracial solidarity, um, and, uh, mutual identification where the Race doesn't, you know, melt away and we're all one people in the streets, but there is at least a, a, an understanding that um, 
all sorts of people are welcome to to participate and and fight um, and uh, be a part of this. So you have in the initial um, the initial days, yeah, uh, people um, say you know when uh, a white guy is smashing the windows at the CNN um, building, uh, the crowd can chant "Go white boy, go white boy" and things like that. Um, where not necessarily because the state uh, and uh, the nonprofits and the police are able to come back into that space. Um, it's not because of that that uh, the racial categories uh, kind of drop back down into place, but those racial categories always existed. And as the movement progresses and the politics uh, aren't as much, you know, solidarity based on rioting and what what we kind of call illegalism, um, once those start to go away, yeah, the when the energy dies down and uh, people are able to kind of face each other again, those racial categories kind of move back in. Um, and you see a point where um, there is the word I'm going to use is paranoia, um, but it's justified paranoia, like um, with the Atlanta, um, the autonomous zone that's created in the in the ashes of the Wendy's. Um, white people were looked at distrustfully because um, news media, white news media in that city was very harsh against um, that occupation, that autonomous zone. And so there was a, a, a distrust of people who were coming around who aren't, you know, a part of this neighborhood, uh, aren't, you know, down with the cause, etc. Um, where this, yeah, this distrust of people um, coming in is heightened, especially because of the ways that um, that things have played out specifically in Atlanta, um, the ways that racial politics have always happened in Atlanta. Um, so we see that in the yeah, in the early days um, with when the energy's high um, and uh, action action can be had anywhere in the streets that you have this situation where um yeah there's a lot more solidarity that's capable just because you get to, you can prove how down you are just by being in the streets with other people um one person in portland that we talked to uh was uh saying that you know you knew who you were who you kind of trusted and who you were with because you were with them all the time you see them a lot in the streets they you know you have done uh, deeds together. Um, and you can, you can start to see who you trust. Um, whereas yeah, when that, when that energy goes away, who, who can you trust? Yeah. And I think that's actually part of the way that the ruling class reasserts the racial hegemony, right? So as this, the height of the uprisings dying down and these moments, Moments, these kind of like salient moments of racial solidarity are happening, then they're able to bring in like token racialized minorities to speak on behalf of racial groups and get the buy-in from liberals and progressives, basically. And in that way, reassert a racial hegemony. And I, I think that's like part of the conversation around Kamala Harris or part of the conversation around a lot of Atlanta politicians, for example. And so it's, that's going to keep happening. And I think the interesting thing is when it doesn't happen, right? Like one of the refrains you hear all the time from 
city officials or police forces is like these were outside agitators um, or white anarchists who were participating in this. And sometimes those things really hold. And usually that's in moments where the the schisms, the cracks are really showing. And so I think there's also there's us understanding that racial dynamics are here. And so how can we be um, part of kind of supporting and figuring out what black autonomy looks like, what the autonomy of people of color looks like and moments like this and figure out ways that, yeah, maybe they're able to be transcended in a moment, but also recognize that they're going to continue and that we have to work with them. And I think one of the things too, like we can view the, the stuff that happened in Atlanta, especially the fact that it ended in a tragedy with the death of Sequoia Turner um, with you know, a sober eye, but there's also a kind of radical black autonomous zone in Atlanta and Atlanta's black racial politics have been really rooted in respectability and the idea that Atlanta's ahead in black politics. So for that to happen in Atlanta was a really big deal too. One person that we talked to in East New York described like she's out talking with her neighbors about the uprising that's going down and some people were saying, like, you know, they're perceiving the rioting as like multiracial, maybe non-black, maybe white people rioting in downtown Brooklyn. And they're like, the cops are going to get real off with people breaking curfew and they're going to come back and uh, take it out on people here. You know, and I think that's a that's like 500 years of experience of that happening, you know. Uh, and then I think when the earlier I admit like the local elites, especially elites of color, then come in in that moment to say, like, yes, I can really represent you. I think that's a play to the local communities of color. Um, there's that dynamic. But there's also I think we hit on this. It's also a play to white liberals, you know. So the then the majority of like, uh, I guess, white and non-black liberals who are inclined to, like, look for something in official politics to follow and also be good, racially good people, you know in solidarity like they turn toward those voices too and then prove right the people that are like ah white folks aren't really going to keep fighting in the streets with us you know so that's a dynamic i think we got to deal with in the coming years in the wake of the rebellion you know we saw a continued uh shift to the right in the whole political spectrum we saw the democrats double down on funding the police uh we obviously had the January 6th insurrection, which I believe in many ways was a direct response to the uprising. The past two years post George Floyd, what does that tell us uh, about either politics or the potential for revolutionary project to develop and, you know, everything else? I think that you basically just pointed to in many ways like that, the overarching to me kind of political, existential, racial, question of the u.s colonial project and how um how it's playing out now like what it means when there is actually mass movement that's sort of radical in nature and how the white supremacist forces in this country who have their hands on all the levers of power will not be giving that up in any way easily um, and are able to exploit a racial narrative that they've been building for hundreds of years. And yeah, I, I think Chino's talking about 
we're really seeing this happening in schools, right? I mean, schools are a huge terrain where this is playing out, where the very content of like, I mean, the U.S. education system's ability to relay accurate history has never, never gotten great marks. You know, they're straight D's, I think, on that. But now they're aiming for F's. So sort of seeing the like extreme policing and white supremacist push inside of schools of curriculum of literally just saying the word gay inside of a classroom, much less talking about queer and gay history and reality right now. Um, and I think we're also just seeing this front too come out in the policing of children. Um, and also as usual, the kind of patriarchy and misogyny that we see happening in the policing of women and non-cis men's bodies and what they're able to do with them. So these, these fronts are to me really playing out amongst youth and in the fields of education. And the interesting thing that I see happening is like, okay, you know, there's been a lot of research and articles written about how a lot of these groups that are funneling the anti quote unquote anti CRT backlash are really right wing, you know, million dollar, billion dollar funders who are funding this stuff. And then you have, you have like a real pushback and on the ground pushback that's happening. But also I think this is, it points to the sort of crisis that we find ourselves in of being able to put forward again, this idea of like bold, radical demands um, and um, like programs and reality. So like, are we really fighting this hard so that we can reinstate McGraw Hill, you know, like, the textbook company that has been writing trash textbooks for since I was in school. No, that shouldn't be what we're fighting for. And you're seeing a little bit of an entrance of the idea of like abolition within education spaces. And what does that look like? And how can we speak to that? But yeah, I, I think we need to understand that it's not just playing out along the lines of police things or police murders, of course, but keeping our ear to the ground around how this is playing out um, amongst people in education, amongst youth and education too in the United States is a fascinating place because 80% of public school teachers in the United States are white. Right. So for, for them to also be, a lot of them are defending their right to teach a particular type of history and like as in an accurate history in the classroom. So for that to be coming from a, a largely white my majority as well is really interesting. And again, kind of speaking to what racial solidarity can look like in these times. To piggyback off of uh, Ever and the, the teacher situation, and then also to kind of tie in the, the poverty of ideas uh, within, um, you know, the left is really the, the education sphere really challenges um where our tactics and strategies are as the left and how we interact with, say, official politics. Um, because like, like ever was saying, and as anybody with eyes who's watched the news, um, over the past year can see these fights are being had in school boards, um, that are being had in official politics, uh, governors, et cetera, et cetera, where the left, if the left is going to attempt to make an intervention into these spaces and into into these spheres 
um, spheres, it will have to question what our actual tactics with regards to um, official politics are. How do we fight these battles, especially if they're playing out in these in these arenas and these fields? So I think that, yeah, uh, the big question today is what is to be done. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.